I've got an announcement that tonight we're going to finish Revelation. We're going to cover two chapters tonight. <laughs> yeah, we'll be here till midnight. But we will finish tonight. No, we're, we're going to, it's uh, the last chapter especially uh, just gives us the final words. And, and so we're able to pull those two together tonight. So we're going to do that. Let me also share with you that uh, uh, next week we will not meet. Neither will we meet the following week. Uh, the week. So our, our next time together will be in January, the first Thursday of January. Wait, is that right? Yeah. First Thursday of January, okay? So you're going to take a couple weeks off and have some time. Dad, did I get that wrong? Yes, we will have our Christmas Eve service next week, uh, and that will be uh, over at uh, Stormgrove. So uh, that's at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So hope you plan to come with your family and friends. We're going to take time to just celebrate some wonderful uh, carols and, and have some stories, have a children's story, and of course we'll share the gospel. We'll also be uh, taking our, our special gift or giving for missions, and uh, we're supporting two mission, missions organizations again this year like last year. That's always exciting and special, and I hope you'll make that, that service. Well, let's go ahead and begin with prayer tonight. Uh, those of you who are just watching by live stream, you missed uh, what we started with was a singing of happy birthday to Richard Batiste. And so now uh, the, the cake has been cut. People are starting to eat the cake. See, you're missing out when you don't come on Thursday night. But I know a lot of them cannot. So that's just like putting, you know, that's pouring oil on their heads or something. They're not happy about that. But anyway, uh, we are, we are here and we're ready to worship the Lord, so let's, let's start with prayer. Father, uh, as we come together tonight and open the Word of God, our hearts are moved not by man's words, not by uh, man's ability. Our hearts are moved by the fact that we are spending time learning and growing in the book that will stand forever. These are the words of God. We are thankful that you've given self-disclosure to us so that we can know things that have not yet come to pass and that we can, with excitement in our hearts, say, Maranatha, come, Lord, come. And we pray that in the name of Jesus, you would allow us tonight to not only learn, but also practice what we learn. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Revelation chapter 21, we're going to start there, and it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Revelation 21, verse 1. Powerful verse, a lot being said right there in one verse. So now we've moved, where, where we are now in terms of time and eternity We've moved away from the seven-year tribulation. Now listen, now we've moved beyond the millennial reign that we talked about last year, the thousand-year millennial reign. This is now referring to the, close, the closing of that time, and we're entering a new time, and that is the time of a new heaven, a new earth, and for the first heaven and the first earth, it had passed away. And some, some uh, commentaries uh, want you to think that it's still part of 
this earth, that it's not really a passing away, it's spiritualized. I don't believe that. I believe literally what is being said here in the Bible. I believe that the heavens and the earth are going to pass away. And a new heaven and a new earth will come into being. And the reason I believe that, so now if I can put it in perspective, if this is in fact after the seven-year tribulation, after the thousand-year reign of Christ, this is certainly in the eternal realm. Now, we're now living in the eternal realm. What John is seeing is in the eternal realm. And here's how we know it. Because it says, and the sea was no more. The sea was no more. So there is no sea in eternity. There is, there is no earth with a sea that we will still be on. You know, if you listen to the uh, Jehovah Witness, they will tell you that isn't this a beautiful earth that God created for us? And this is, of course, where we'll all spend eternity, that God will make this earth new. Well, He does for a season, but not for eternity. There will be a new earth. Peter tells us in 2 Peter, if you like to write down the verses, I like to share them for you. Uh, I love being in a church where there's a lot of Bible students, people who love to study the Bible. That's nothing to be ashamed of. That's what God wants of us, right? He wants us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 10, here's what Peter tells us. He said, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should, be, or should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. So the heavens are going to pass away. He said plural. So we're talking about the first and the second heaven. We're talking not only about our atmosphere, but we're talking about the celestial heaven as well. We'll pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So the heavens, in our verse, back in verse 1 of Revelation 21, the heavens refer to the physical universe, I believe. And most scholars agree with that. Most do agree. Uh, the roar, that speaks of a whistling or a crackling sound as of, as, like, like objects that are being consumed by flames. You sat with a good fire, I'm sure, at some point in your life. You know, we have a fireplace in our home. And a week or so ago when it got cold that one night, Rini said, please light the fireplace. So I did. And of course, it's the pine wood and stuff that we had, in, and it was crackling, you know, it's kind of a neat sound. That's, that's what he's referring to here, okay? God will incinerate the universe. Probably, if, you're, if we just think about it from a material realm, it's probably going to be an atomic reaction that disintegrates all matter that, uh, as we know it. <clears throat> this is completely plausible, church. Listen. Uh, just think about it. God spoke the universe into existence. When He spoke the universe into existence, He spoke into existence a scientific matrix, so to speak. 
Think about that. All the laws that we know, the, law, the simple law of gravity. When God spoke the earth into existence and He separated the skies from the earth and the water He raised, all of that was according to the laws that were in place, that He allowed. So as He spoke, laws are coming into place. And so there's this puzzle. And, and, and that's exactly what you have. Now, in the creating, interestingly... When he spoke matter into existence, he created what for matter? Protons and electrons. Now think about that. The, the, this, this minute thing that you can't even see with your human eye and is so powerful. And when God spoke matter into existence, electrons and neutrons came into existence. Electrons, rather. And, and, and then he assembled them. He, he, he made them so that they, they worked together. In uh, creating, I did a little research on this. In creating the atoms and bringing into the heart of the atom the protons, they were so tightly knit together in the nucleus of an atom, he had to violate the law of electricity, which I learned is Collins' law, which speaks of the repelling force of positive charges. Uh, so, so we know that positive poles repel one another, right? If you take two magnets, the positive ends, try to put them together. You'll be there all day. It ain't going to work, okay? They don't go together. When God spoke things in, He overcame that law. He put things together. Uh, in other words, if you try to put them together, they're going to fight each other. But there is something that when God spoke creation, material things, it holds together. The atom bomb illustrates to us the nature of an atom because that's what's happening is the nucleus of an atom is bombarded with slow-moving neutrons that upset the delicate balance of the protons in the heart of that atom, and, then, and it releases them. And, and as it releases them, you have this tremendous release of energy and power, and you see the tremendous power release when protons with an atom, within an atom are set free because they can't stay together. They're not supposed to stay together. God's holding them. He's holding the entire earth. All matter is being held together right now by God. He spoke it. Whatever He speaks, it happens. If He tells an apple tree that when your fruit falls, it's going to fall upward, it would do it. That is your God. He speaks and it happens. This blows my mind. Now, God who holds together the universe by the word of His power, we are told in Scripture, it says that He created everything by the word of His power, and by Him all things are held together. That's in Colossians, if you want to know one passage. I'm not going to tell you where, but it's early in Colossians. I'll just say that much. It, it, Colossians is a wonderful, it is the richest teaching of Christology. What is Christology? the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of Jesus. So the material universe disintegrating is nothing more than God relaxing and letting that atom go. <laughs> and uh, the whole thing will go up in one gigantic explosion. The heavens and the earth, the universe, it's all going to go up at the same time. The whole material universe, following by the natural laws with the protons repelling each other, this whole material universe will go out of existence, and it's going to happen in a moment's time. Uh, now, verse 5. 
God said, Behold, I am making all things new. I'm, we're moving down here. That's inter- I'm going to come back, don't worry. But that just, that just undergirds what we just said. When God destroys everything, He's going to make everything new from that. Isn't that wonderful? There will be a new heaven, <coughs> a new earth. The former will not be remembered or brought into mind, the Bible tells us. We're not going to sit around after, we, after that age of material heaven and, and earth that we're aware of, that we know, that we lived on. We're not going to sit down and go, remember down on earth when we used to... Nobody's going to remember that. God's going to remove whatever DNA in our brains mem- memorizes those events. It's not going to be there. We're not going to remember it for whatever reason. Uh, it's a new heaven and a new earth. And we are new people, new creations in Christ Jesus. Amen? Living out the fullness of that creation. Right now, we're new creations in Christ. Right now, you are. You're not the old person. You're the new person. But you're not fully living the new life yet. You're getting a lot of it. I mean, God's given us the ability to walk on this earth in liberty and freedom through Jesus Christ. Amen. We're no longer bound by the by the power or the penalty of sin. Isn't that wonderful? But heaven is going to reveal even more to you as a new uh, creature in Christ. And so let's keep moving if we can. And the sea was no more. As I said, that's going to be too bad for the surfers and the fishermen, and I are one. (laughs) Oh, man, that's going to be tough. Some of you, how many of you like to fish? Several of you. Yeah, that's going to be tough. Uh, But just remember this. If God's taking away the sea that He created, what is He going to replace it with? Whatever we have is going to be far superior to what we experienced on earth. That kind of excites me, you know? So I don't know what that means. I just know that God's a great God, and it took Him less than a day to make the sea. And in heaven, he's had all this time to prepare a place for us, Jesus said. Praise the Lord. And I saw the holy city, verse 2, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The terms holy and new, that distinguishes that particular city coming down out of heaven. Because it's holy and new. It's different from any earthly... You've never lived in a holy and new city. I haven't either. Not in this world, right? But it's unique that it has an earthly name. Look at that. Even though we're not going to remember the earth, the things that we did, yet we're going to, that name is familiar. Jerusalem. That gives it continuity with earth, especially with the place of our redemption. Now... I think it's significant that this glorious dwelling place of God, this new Jerusalem, this new holy city, uh, where His people uh, are literally in this holy city. You're talking about a a city that has many, many people. And people are interacting with people. That's what happens in a city. It's called community. And I just love the fact that that this city isn't a place of isolation. It's not going to be isolation. You're not going to be alone like you are here. There's moments where you're alone. There, it's community. It's social. It's, 
It's party, celebrating Christ. It's, it's sharing life together. It's going to be an incredible experience. Activity, interest, people. Which means that we're not going to be uh, without social life. Some of you are probably thrilled to hear that. You love social. Some of you are like, okay, I can take it or leave it, the social aspect. But in heaven, you're going to enjoy it. Okay, I promise. You're, not going to, you're a new person, right? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Wow. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So in this new place, this new earth, this new heaven, uh, no physical infirmities, no weaknesses, no sin, no tiredness, no weariness. We are going to be complete as God created us. You know, in, in, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve started out complete. They didn't have any of these things that we have today. It wasn't until they sinned that that stuff found its root in us. But we're going to go back and have that again. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God for that. Uh, the Christian concept of heaven as a city is a place of life, activity, interest, people. It's a place where we're not going to experience sin. It's purity. It's holy. It's true. It's a community of righteousness that we're going to live in. It's almost impossible to fathom that, honestly. It, it, to me, when I read this, it it sounds like a fairy tale because I'm so bound by flesh and blood. I'm bound by the constant temptation of the old sin nature that wants to show its ugly head, the temptation of Satan himself. We're, that's the life we live. We live constantly battling against these things. There's a battle of spirit and flesh, right, the Bible says? But, but the reality is, this is real. This is going to happen. You are going to be in a constant state of righteousness in heaven with everybody else. And he who was seated on the throne, behold, I am making all things new. He said, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I think that's a perfect place for God to say, write this stuff down because what I'm telling you right now, it's trustworthy, it's true. Why? Because John was probably thinking the same way you and I are thinking right now. This is impossible. This is beyond belief. This is fairy tale stuff. And God said, no, I'm going to reinforce. Write it down. It's trustworthy. I'm telling you, I'm showing you what it's going to be, and it will be. And then he goes further. He says in verse 6, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is called the author 
and the finisher of our faith, the beginning and the end. In verse 6b, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Drinking and thirst are common pictures of God's supply and man's spiritual need. We see it throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Remember when Jesus stood on the steps of the Temple Mount and He cried out, I think it's somewhere around John chapter 8 or chapter 7, and He cried out, If any man is thirsty, let him come to Me, and I will give him a drink. I'll give him a drink. He wasn't speaking of a physical thirst. He was speaking of a spiritual hunger, a spiritual thirst in the heart of every man. And on the day, in that day, it was standing on the Temple Mount, it was the day of uh, uh, the tent of, or I'm sorry, the, the day of uh, the Feast of Booths. It was the final day in the Feast of Booths, which would have been in the fall. And that's where they, this, the Israelites remember how God provided for their forefathers in the wilderness for 40 years. Their shoes never wore out. Their clothes never wore out. God brought water out of a rock. He provided manna, food to eat every morning when they would wake up, go out and collect what you can eat for that day. And that's what that Feast of Booths was a celebration of. You say, why is it Feast of Booths? Because the families of the Jews, all the families, would build little booths made with palms and sticks, and they would sleep in them for the week under this open air kind of a thing. And, and, and the fathers would say to their children, this is how our forefathers, this is how our people lived for 40 years. And God provided. And on the last day of that great feast, the uh, priest would have able-bodied men take these very large jars, I'm talking jars that stand that high, huge jars, jugs, and they would carry them down the steps from the temple all the way down to the pool of Siloam. And they would fill them with water. And they would walk back up the steps all the way to the top, to the temple mount. And then they would pour the water out on the steps. And the water would come cascading down the rock steps, which was a picture of water coming out of a rock that God provided. It was on that day, the final day of the great feast, John said, that Jesus stood and cried out. Who knows, maybe the steps are still wet from the water. And he cries out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and I will give him a drink. He was trying to turn Israel away from just being historical Israel to understand that God is with you right now and you can get a fresh drink of spiritual water that will fill your belly. In fact, the next thing he said was, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. If you'll take a drink from me, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. By the way, we took a drink. We did. Those of us who believe. Christ is now in us. And out of you every day should flow rivers 
of living water. While the world is drinking stagnant cistern water, pools of, of, of old water that's muddy and dirty, you should be drinking every day from a spring of living water. And the world should be able to see the difference and say, how do I get a drink of that water? Remember the time when Jesus was uh, with the woman at the well. And he said to her, if you drink of this water, you will thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I will give you, you'll never thirst again. At first, she's thinking, you know, man, physically, give me that kind of water. I'll never have to come back to the well again at noon, which is the worst hour of the day to get water. He wasn't referring to H2O. When you drink of me, when you take me in, when you know who I am, you'll take a drink and you'll never thirst again. And of course, the woman took the drink and she ran back to her city and she told the people in her city what she had experienced. And the next thing you know, you see all these people coming across that wilderness field out to Jacob's well where they themselves could get a drink of water. It was while they were coming that Jesus looked to his disciples and he said, uh, the harvest is plentiful. Look, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers. And so that's, that's a picture that we see where this whole idea, and here in our text, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. I love that. What he's saying is, it's without any kind of a response. It's freely given to you. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. Now, write it down if you will. Matthew 25, 34. Let me read it for you. Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The one who conquers will have this heritage. Jesus is the one who conquered the enemy. I was telling my tile guy this week, we had some tile work done in the house. And so I was sharing Christ with this guy and talking with him. And he, he has a Catholic background, although he and his wife don't attend the Catholic church. They, they've had some uh, issues with things that he experienced when he was a little younger, and so they don't go. And uh, so I was sharing with him, I, I mean, I took him back into church history, how the Catholic Church was started, how uh, the Protestant Church came out of, uh, and what God did through men like uh, Tyndale and John Hoos and Martin Luther, and we just went through the journey, and this guy was just all ears. And of course, then I shared with him about Christ. And in our talk together as we were sharing, um, I told him, I said, what Christ has done for us, we could have never done for ourselves. In fact, the Bible says that you are, if you receive Jesus Christ, you are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. So we're not the conquerors. Christ was the conqueror. We are more than a conqueror. And to understand that, I told him the story that I've shared with the church before 
of the prize fighter who goes in the ring. He goes 15 rounds. By the end of the fight, his face is pummeled and swollen, and the referee brings both of the fighters to the middle of the ring, and he holds up this guy's hand. He won the battle. Shortly after, they walk up and hand him a check for a million dollars, this prize fight. And he's looking at that check, and whoa! At about that time, a little lady about that tall walks up to him in the ring, and he takes the check, and he hands it to her. It's his wife. He's the conqueror. She is more than a conqueror. Amen. <laughs> but in a sense, that's, that's us. That is us. We're more than conquerors. And that's what he's saying here in the text. We're told about the glorious inheritance of the saints in light. That inheritance says in Romans 8, 17, and if children, they're then heirs. If you're a child of God, then you're an heir of God and fellow heir with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So if we'll suffer with Christ, we will be glorified with Christ. We will be a joint heir with Christ in heaven. Wow! Man, oh man! So we're going to inherit the whole new universe that God creates. It's all ours to enjoy to the fullest with Him. And He will be with us. He's not going to be distant. He'll be with us. Verse 7, latter part of the verse, And I will be His God, and He will be my Son. Wow, there it is from God Himself. What a privilege and what a blessing to be called God's sons and daughters. Amen? Church, this ought to encourage you tonight. This ought to encourage you. Coming into uh, Christmas, and of course this weekend is our Christmas message, and I'm so excited about it. I can't wait to share. We're going to drift all over the Bible. You know, we came out of Matthew where it's verse, verse by verse. We're taking just a three-week break, and so I get to just jump all over the Bible this weekend. So we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel looking at the birth narrative. Then we're going to jump over to Luke. And then we're going to go into Romans. And then we're going to go all the way back to 2 Samuel. And I mean, just so many things to tie together. But the reality of the whole thing is this. God with us. Emmanuel. He's with us. That changes everything. And that's just a foretaste of what we're going to have in heaven. But as for the cowardly, verse 8, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We talked about that last week. The final resting place for the sinful and for the demonic spirits is the lake of fire. That is the forever and ever hell. And then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, so remember that? Remember the angel that had those seven final bowls? Well, one of them shows up. Uh, and in fact, one of them was the one that, if you remember, who brought about the destruction of the religious Babylon system in chapter 17 and chapter 18, brought about the, the end to the, the Babylon uh, commerce system. So, so now one of those angels comes, and he says in verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels 
who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Wow. Having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So John is taken by this angel up to this mountain where he can see the new Jerusalem coming down. And it's like looking at light that's being refracted through a diamond or a crystal of some type. You can just see the beauty of the colors, right? When you look at the refraction of light through a diamond, can you imagine the refraction of light coming from the holy city coming down? And John saw it with his own eyes. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. So the company that's coming down out of heaven would be the church. But it would also be uh, the, the saints of the Old Testament who God beforehand credited them righteousness in Christ before they even fully understand, understood the gospel, the message of Christ. But he knew they believed, and so he credited to them as righteous. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So now there's also the, the disciples' names are listed there. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as, as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So a cubit is about 18 inches. Uh, so the height of the wall is about 200 feet high on this city. Think about a wall, 200 feet high. What is the wall that Trump is building? How high is that wall? Anybody know? What is it, 20 feet? Probably like 20 feet. 200 feet. People get all upset about building the wall. Well, if they plan to go to heaven, they're going to have a big wall. God's building a wall. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Wow, pure. Think about that. Glass that is pure, so pure that you can see through it. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second was sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth uh, chrys... I can't even say it, chrysoprase, uh, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. Now the city walls are 200 feet high, so the gates have to be pretty high too, and each gate is a single pearl. Sounds like a fairy tale story to me. It's not. 
the Creator, is going to give this to us. I love it. And the street of the city was pure gold, like, like transparent glass. So that's interesting to me. The things that in this life are prized and valued by men to the point that men will lie and steal and kill to get them. In heaven, it has no value. The streets are like gold, and gold is heaven's asphalt. <laughs> when was the last time you ran outside to grab a piece of asphalt and take it in and just treasure it? There's so much of it, it doesn't hold that kind of value in heaven. It's just the beauty of it. Nobody's going to be fighting over, man, if I could just chip off a piece of that pearl on that city gate. Verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Did you see that? The temple is not an edifice. The temple is God and Christ. That's the temple. There's no need for a temple because we meet everywhere we go with God. He is always dwelling with us, the Scripture here has told us, and He will always be amongst us. He's dwelling with His people. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. Its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus Christ is the lamp. The light of the city, what is that? It is the Shekinah of God. It is the glory of God. The glory of God is what illuminates, provides the light. There, no sun, no moon, God. God Himself is the illumination. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. No night. It's always lit. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's interesting here. Who are the kings of the earth? That's a difficult passage to understand. Um, depending on which commentary you look at, you get different answers for each one of them. Uh, perhaps God is going to create another new order. We don't, we don't really know. If He's creating all these things, what's to say He doesn't create another new order here on the new earth? We can't limit God. We don't know what He's going to do. In fact, the reality is there are many secrets that God has not given to us that are going to be exposed in heaven, that He's going to bring out in heaven. That was true in the Old Testament, if you remember correctly. The Old Testament saints did not understand the mystery of the church. They didn't understand that. They didn't understand that God was going to reach out to the Gentiles and bring them in, graft them into the family. They had no clue. They didn't know the church. The church is a mystery in the Old Testament. Yet in the New Testament, God reveals it for what it is. Well, the same is true for heaven. There are going to be mysteries here that we don't understand, that the Bible doesn't give us 
enough information to form a, a, a plausible answer, uh, but God will reveal. It's going to be a time of great discovery for us when we go to heaven. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, so there are glorious mysteries that we know not of. But what we do know is that we will reign with Him as kings, bringing the glory of the nations unto Him. Just know that it's going to be an, it's going to be an interesting time. You're going to always be learning, always growing, always seeing, always experiencing, always discovering. Why? Because that's who God is. He is a creator. He's a creator. He's unlike anything in this world. Amen? Well, that's chapter 21. Let's go to chapter 22, the final chapter of the book of Revelation. Who thought we would ever get here, huh? Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's hard to imagine a new type of a river, but that's what he calls it. He says, the river of the water of life. He called it that because that's all John understands. When he saw it, he thought river. But we, all, we know that the sea has already been completely destroyed. All the rivers have been destroyed. So this is something totally new. And it's bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Hard to imagine that. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. Wow, Scott, are you excited about that? A tree that bears fruit 12 months, and it's not the same fruit. Every month in heaven, you're going to get a different fruit from the same tree. 12 seasons, 12 fruit-bearing seasons. Isn't that wonderful? Now, we have some very interesting uh, kinds of trees here, the way man has understood the genetic codes of trees and the grafting in. I mean, you can actually, I read today of somebody who grew up in Southern California and in their backyard, they said, we had a tree, a citrus tree that bore both uh, Valencia and navel oranges at different times in the year. And it bore them lemons. The same tree. It had been grafted several times. Isn't that bizarre? We, we know that man has done some incredible things with what God created. And God created it for the purpose of being able to do this. Because uh, how many of you like ma mangoes? How many species or different kinds of mango are there, Scott? That you're Thousands. Did you know that? Now, in the garden, when the mango tree was created, there weren't thousands. God left it with man. He said, I want you to cultivate. I want you to take care of the garden. I want you to be the ones that will garden this beautiful land. And man has, in the last days, has learned how to, again, graft into. So you've got mangoes that taste a little bit like coconut. You've got mangoes that taste a little bit like peaches. And I've got both of those mango trees in my yard. Scott Walker's the re if you want to know about mangoes or really any kind of fruit that grows in Florida, you see Scott. He'll he can help you with that. But that isn't that amazing. And here in heaven is a tree that bears fruit year round and different kinds of fruit. The leaves of the tree 
were for the healing of the nations. Now, why do the nations need healing if there's no more suffering, no more pain, no more sickness, no more disease? Well, I'm going to tell you that that is a very poor translation into the English language. If you want to know what the Greek says about that, it's not referring to healing as much as it is health-giving. Health-giving. The word for healing is therapian in the Greek. And it doesn't refer to healing as much as it refers to in the Greek language. It means uh, therapy. It's where we get our English word therapy. So uh, it's the, called the tree of what? Life. So by eating of this tree, it produces health. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, no longer will there be anything accursed. The earth has been cursed as a result of sin. We all know that. Genesis 3.17 it said, Adam, uh, God spoke to Adam and said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Well, guess what? In heaven, no more thorns, no more thistles, no more sweating by the brow to work hard. Isn't that something? It'll just all flow from God, the beauty of it. He's holding it all together, created by Him for us in eternity, forever and ever and ever. No more curses. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. I love that. His name will be on their foreheads. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, there's a, that's a twofold meaning. Jesus was first saying, if you'll receive me as your, as your Savior, if you'll receive me as Messiah, then you will experience God in a more intimate way. And we have done that. But when you get to heaven, you're going to see Him face to face, literally. Isn't that wonderful? And His name will be on their foreheads, and the night will be no more, and there will be no, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's just so hard to comprehend. So again, look here, in chapter 21, the same thing that happened in chapter 20. Or chapter 22, the same thing happened in chapter 21. He said to, to me, these words are trustworthy and true. What I've just shared with you, what you just saw coming down out of heaven, the New Jerusalem and the beauty of it, that's not a fairy tale. This stuff is going to happen. This is God who is affirming or attesting to what he's saying. He's saying you can count on what I'm telling you here. John. And remember now, why did God have John write the letter? Because Jesus wanted the letter to go to the seven churches for us. So our faithful and true God is giving us a picture of what's to come. Again, just like the last chapter, we have this affirmation of truth. And the reason God does that is because He knows our mind. He knows the state of our mind, that we in this flesh and blood 
are going to be a little skeptical. We're going to walk away and go, really? Do you really think? And that's what a lot of people have done with the Bible. They've taken the scriptures and they've tried to make it so it's practical to them, that they can understand it. Some things in the Bible aren't practical that way. Some things are very deep and spiritual. And you can't try to just write it off. It's like the church today is plagued by pragmatism. You know, it, it, you know, that means simply, you know, it, look, if this works, that's, that, let's just do that. that that's, that's what we ought to do. No, no. There's a lot of things in the Bible that don't make sense. But you do them. And it works in God's economy. It might not make sense on this earth, but that's okay. I'm not living by what's practical for the earth. I'm living by what's right with God. Amen? Amen. Verse 6, And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. So remember, the Lord is talking to John here. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You are blessed if you keep the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. Now, we need to understand, again, I don't think that John, this happened once before with John as he was receiving vision. I don't think that he's desiring to do angel worship. I don't think it's his desire at all. I think John is completely overwhelmed. He is completely knocked off his rocker with all he's seeing. And he just falls to his knees to the one who's revealing these things to him. And the angel came back to him and said, don't do that. Look what he says in verse 9. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. I love it. I love it. It's interesting how, if we're honest, we too can make the same mistake that John made. And we can begin to worship because we have some incredible experience with God in a worship environment. And all of a sudden, our thoughts turn to the instrument of God that brought forth what God is doing in that moment. And we start worshiping the instrument of God rather than God Himself. The instrument is never to be worshipped. All of us need to do a little check and balance. If you're a person who thinks, well, I've got to listen to this music by this group, they are just unbelievable. Or no, I, 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 well, I've got to have this preacher. That, boy, that preacher. You've got to be careful because it's easy to cross the line into the worship of the instrument rather than the worship of God. You say, well, how do I know the difference so I don't cross that line? Here's the difference. A true believer who is worshiping God and God alone will look beyond the instrument and receive what God is saying through the instrument. Which means this. You could go into a church where the preacher doesn't have much of a personality, 
where he doesn't seem to have the, the gift of persuasion and communication. But if he is reading or speaking the word of the Lord, Scripture, you should be able to worship. You should be able to go into a church that meets its 12 people. That's the whole church. And you get in that setting and those people in their own little simple way begin a worship service. Not even being able to play instruments and they sing off key. But you listen to what they're singing. Don't focus on the instrument. But focus on the message coming forth through the instrument. Because the message is from God. And you can worship God. I had a wake-up call when I was in India. It was coming off of a, we had been in Siliguri and preaching and, and doing some uh, teaching with some of the Christian leaders there. And we got, we were to leave there and go uh, to Calcutta. And, uh, uh, but what happened was a fog came in. We couldn't fly out. We could not get a flight. So after staying there an extra day, we still couldn't get a flight, so we made the decision, let's just travel by, you know, bus. We hired somebody who had a bus. We got on the bus. It was going to be a 14-hour bus ride. And uh, we get on this bus, and little did we know, this bus didn't have any shocks. 14 hours feeling every bump in the road. And you can't sleep, you can't rest, you can't relax. It is holding on, trying to keep your rear end from going crazy, you know, up and down from the seat. You're just holding on for 14 hours. We got to Calcutta, showed up at uh, uh, Patra's house. And, and he said, oh, we're so glad that you're here. God bless you all. Come in, come in. We're like so tired and so weary. And he had had a big meal prepared for us. And so we ate this meal. It was wonderful. And then he made the announcement. I need two of you who are willing to travel by train and go to a very small village that's about 70 miles from here and to preach the gospel tonight. <laughs> no hands went up. <laughs> We're all looking around like that. And he goes, Brother Greg, would you be willing to go? <laughs> you don't turn down uh, Susantra Patra. Uh, I'm glad to go. Yes, brother, I'll go. So I went along with Mark Shaner. He went as my prayer support. And we, we were taken to the train station in Calcutta, which if you've ever seen the movie with Gandhi... Uh, when he goes to the train station in, in Calcutta, if you remember the one scene where uh, it's just wall-to-wall -wall people at the train station, and they get on these trains, it is wall, you're standing like this on a train, or you're sitting along the edge, just holding on. And in that movie, Gandhi is sitting there, and his feet are dangling, and the train's jam-packed with people, and one of his sandals falls off. And immediately he reaches down while the train's moving and he grabs the other sand and he throws it back where the other one was. Because he wanted to make sure whoever found the one would find the other and have shoes to wear. So we get to this train station and I'm not kidding you, I'm telling you, 
I could have walked on the heads of the people. It was that many people. They were that close together. And we get on that train, and there we're on it, and I'm sitting there, and people up against you, you know, you're like this. After this, you know, 14-hour ride, after I'm just wiped out tired, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. And then this guy starts uh, preaching. He stands over in the corner, and he starts preaching, and he pulls out... Just going after it, man. And I'm thinking, man, this guy's really selling something here. He's a good preacher. And then he holds up this little box. And I looked to uh, Mark and I said, what the heck is going on? And Mark, I don't have a clue. And we talked to one of the guys there that could speak a little English. And he said, he's a hawker. He's selling things. I said, well, what's he selling? He's selling like Preparation H (laughs) on the train. So... (laughs) <laughs> Here I thought he was a preacher, you know, sharing the gospel. So we finally arrive, and it's now getting dark, and we're taken straight over. We didn't have a car to ride. It was just a rickasaw, and then we had to walk for probably four or five blocks of just little huts, straw huts. We finally get to this. I'm thinking we're going to see a church building. There's no church building. It's a hut, just like all the other huts. And so we come up to it, and they're real short. The, the ceiling's that high. So we, you know, get in, and you take your shoes off. At, at the outside, you'll see all the little shoes. Take your shoes off, and you climb under. You go in, and we, we're in there and looking, and there's only two people sitting there. And we went over and sat down, and a couple more people came in. I think there might have been a total of about seven of us. And I'm thinking in my mind, what in the world? We just, drew, we just went 14 hours, and now this long train ride and this walk over here, and I am dead tired, and I've got to share with seven people. Seriously, is this what it's about? And then the worship started, and there was no instrument, and they just started singing, and out of their hearts flowed rivers of living water. I'm not talking about the voice. I'm not talking about a, a, a you know American Idol voice. I'm talking about the voice that you have in the shower in the morning. And they're just singing with all their heart before the Lord. The Lord snapped me in half. He arrested me. Who do you think you are? That you need a larger crowd to speak to. These are my servants. He just brought me down to nothing. I'll never forget that. I, to this day, I've always, when people ask me, what was your India experience like? I, I, they don't ask so much now, but they did a lot when I, after I'd returned for the first couple years. And I would always say that India, first of all, India was the classroom. I was the student. And the people were the teachers. If you want to ask me what India is about, that's the picture. I learned so much from these broken, shattered, splintered, crushed people who had nothing to hold on to but God. I learned what true worship is. Oh, beautiful. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, don't get focused on the instrument of God. You focus on the Lord. 
You focus on the words coming through the instrument. In America, our danger is that we latch on to big personalities. We latch on to big lights, big, you know, presentations, big concerts. That's where we feel God's presence. That's not God. That's the lights. Why do you think multitudes go to concerts to hear pagan music? It's not because God's doing anything there. It's the atmosphere. It's the contextualization that makes people want to be part of it. In the church, don't let that ever get in the way of your worship of God. And I'm thankful at Vero Bible Fellowship in this season that we're in, we don't have that stuff. We worship in a, a cafeteria. All we have are the incandescent lights. <laughs> and uh, there's something beautiful about that. It keeps us simple and pure in our devotion to Christ, does it not? And I would imagine that after the Lord blesses us with a permanent structure to worship in, we're never going to place the emphasis on contextualization. The emphasis must always be on God with a simple and pure devotion. Amen? Amen. Well, that's what he's saying here. See, we got all the way through chapter 20, chapter 20, or chapter 21. Here we are now, just a few verses left, and you thought we were going to finish up by now. And I just stopped and took you on another journey. But I, I think it fits. I think it's necessary that we see what we just said. Don't do that, the angel said. Worship God. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So 2,000 years ago, the angel told John, the time is near. The time is near. It's interesting that when Daniel had his experience through dreams of eternity, of heaven, uh, he was told to seal up what he had been given because they couldn't handle it. Don't, don't share it. Here, he's telling John, share it. Share it with the church. So it's interesting that things in Revelation are to be unsealed. Revelation is a sealed book, but yet God says, I'm going to unseal it for you. I want you to understand it. Yet when you talk to people, most people think, oh, you can't understand Revelation. It's a sealed book. Don't even try it. And I'm thinking, whoa, really? Because the Scripture tells us that we're blessed. Look, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. How would you know the prophecy of the book if you don't read it? I grew up in a movement. They didn't teach the Revelation. I didn't grow up in a church hearing a lot about Revelation. It was almost like, well, that's beyond what we were, it's really confusing. It's just, a, it's a lot of symbols, it's a lot of spiritualizing, and it's just too hard to understand. Don't even try to read it. That's what I was taught. That's wrong. He says, blessed you are if you keep the words of the prophecy of this book. I think that we need to understand that it is a dangerous thing to try to take the Bible and make it what it's not, to take Revelation and create our own picture out of it. I think what when, that's why I don't teach the Revelation as spiritualizing. I, I teach it literally. Because at least if I just say what the Bible says, I can't drift. If I do make mistakes, it's not going to be because I'm trying to go off on some wild goose chase. 
And here's the thing, look, verse 11, let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bring my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Now, understand that as a child of God, you are not going to be judged in the end. You have already been judged. Through Jesus Christ's work on the cross, Christ was judged in your behalf. He took your place of judgment, right? We understand that? So that's not what he's talking about for the believer. He's talking about the, the, the judgment of rewards. And again, we've talked about that in the past, that those who do things for show so people can praise you, you got your reward. They're praising you. That's your reward. When Jesus comes, you're not going to get a reward. There's no reward for that. The only rewards in heaven are for the things that you did for one purpose only for God, not for man. And I think that's just a beautiful thing. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others or before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus tells us that. So when, you're, when, you're, when you pray, don't go out on the street corner and make a big public display with a lot of fanfare as you pray to God. Where people see you, you're doing something that everybody can see. What's happening? Who is he? Oh, what a man of God. What a woman of God she is. Well, there's your reward. You just got it. When you don't make a big deal out of it and you just do it for the right reason Jesus said Matthew 5 16 let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven because your reward is for having the right motivation so when people do see you but your motivation was not to show them but to just simply do whatever you're doing for the Lord God is pleased by that it's okay it's not wrong that somebody would thank you for what you do and 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 Man, you're, what you, that's awesome, you know? There's nothing wrong with that unless you were wanting them to do that. And that's why you did it. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. You remember the one who received the five talents and how he took those five talents and he made them into ten? And Jesus came and said, awesome job, I'm going to make you ruler over ten cities. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And then the next guy came, hey, you gave me four, I turned them into eight. Hey, I'm going to give you eight cities. Enter into the joy of the Lord. The last guy, you know, I know you're a tough guy. I know that you're, a, you're strict with the money you have and you watch every nickel. And so I just took it and buried it and here it is. I, I didn't lose any of it. And the Lord said, no reward for you. No reward. We should be out there every day, not for the sake of getting a reward, but for the sake of honoring and worshiping God, sharing with others. And when you get to heaven, God will reveal your reward. In heaven, not on earth. Don't try to do it so people see it, okay? Now, he says in verse 13, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. These are the same words that were declared of God in chapter 1. Here Jesus is talking to John and he's declaring the same thing. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to, to the tree of life 
and that they may enter the city by the gates. Remember this now. Jesus said, I am the door to the sheepfold. So to enter the gates of heaven, it's through Jesus Christ, right? He's the way by which we enter the gates of heaven. Verse 15, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. So now he's telling them, okay, right now in your world you have all these evil people. And just make sure that you do things for the right reason and that you walk in righteousness and that you live in me. You find your life in me. I'm the... I'm the gate to the sheepfold. There's no other sheepfold that you want to go to, and there's no other way into, into God's sheepfold. Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Yikes. That's another reason why you don't want to spiritualize everything when it's not just, if it's literal, read it literally. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree in, uh, in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. I can't imagine the audacity of anyone trying to mess around with the book of Revelation. It's not a book to be played with. It's a book for everybody to read, but you read it literally. I'm not saying there aren't some things that are actual, you know, spiritualizing. Uh, there's, there are pictures of, types of... There, there is that, but the whole book isn't that. So take it and read it literally. And, and, and stay away from any conjecture that's just your idea that you, you think is true. Don't treat your conjecture as truth. Revelation 1.3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. He, again, he comes back to it. The time is near. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Praise God. That was like, you know, nearly 2,000 years ago that this was spoken. He says, I'm coming soon. <laughs> and, and you want to say, Lord, it's been 1,900 years. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 3. This is the verse that you and I need to focus on when we get to that place in our mind. Man, you know, he said soon, but 1,900 years, what's going on here? 2 Peter 3.3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is the promise? Things are just going to go on and on and on and on. There isn't going to be any interruption in history. That's what they're saying. But Peter said, look at this, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So here in one, in one sense, he's saying to you and I, the Lord's going to come like a thief in the night. You're not going to 
it's going to be a total surprise to you when the Lord does, re does return. But just know this, that before that, the Lord doesn't see 1,900 years. You know what the Lord sees? Just shy of two days. It's just been two days. And so you and I should always be ready. Amen? Verse 21, what a great parting word at the close of the Bible. How appropriate. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? Probably every time we leave each other, we ought to leave with that message to one another. The grace and the peace of God be with you as you go. Because the next time I see you, we might be in heaven together. You just don't know. Amen? Amen. This book really brings home the, 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 the urgency of sharing the gospel. And it brings such a warmth to my heart that heaven is just around the corner. That I'm going to be with the Lord eternity. You are too. I mean, what's a hundred years on the timeline of eternity? No beginning, no end. A hundred years. What does that look like? You can't even see it. So your life here is nothing but a vapor. But the life to come for those who believe, wow, never ends. Father, thank you so much tonight. We thank you for our salvation that comes through our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is nothing that we have done or could possibly do to save ourselves. Our Savior went to the cross with our sins, and there He bled and He died, and He fulfilled every, everything to pay the price for our sins for us. And we are simply receiving as a free gift of God our salvation. So with hearts of thankfulness and hearts of appreciation, we ask you to empower us to live for you tomorrow, to be witnesses of Jesus Christ tomorrow that we would not take for granted our salvation, but we would extend the gospel to others, always looking for a way, for a reason, to share what we believe and what God has done in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Praise God. God bless each of you tonight.